Hey, good morning. Good morning. You know, for the for those of you that don't know me, my name is Steve, and I'm one of the pastors here. And like Tina said, when you were all like talking over the top of her, uh, we are in. <laughs> I have to back up Tina after burning her down that one time, so uh, I've got to earn some street cred back with her. But. Uh, uh, we are in John chapter 14 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, open to John chapter 14, and we're going to be looking at, really, I think the screen says seven through the, the end of the chapter. We'll see how far we get this morning. Um, but, uh, you know, really, we're going to be kind of diving in at verse eight. You know, what we saw last week is that, you know, this is the night that Jesus is going to be betrayed and then taken to the cross. And Jesus had just told his disciples that he was going to be leaving them and they wouldn't be able to follow him anymore. These, these men who had like given their whole lives to follow Jesus were now being told by Jesus that they could no longer follow him. And then they found out that one of them would betray Jesus, another one would deny Jesus, and their hearts were all like in turmoil and chapter 14 is, is kind of structured around like a series of questions, beginning at the end of chapter 13 all the way through chapter 14. You have the disciples asking questions. And, and what Jesus told his disciples last week is like, you know, with all of this, like your life about to unravel before you in the events that are about to transpire, what he reminded them of is that, that well, it's right here in verse, in verse 6. Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. What he told them was that, you know, he's going to go to the Father, and he's going to make a way to the Father, and, and he is the way, and he is the truth, and he is the life, and that this life that we have in God that's, that comes from God in the presence of God is made available to Je like through Jesus. And then he said that, and I'm going to prepare a place for you, and there, there's plenty of room for everybody, all of the doubt, doubting and troubled there's plenty of room for all of you, and one day I'm going to come back and I'm going to draw you to myself. You know, it would be easy to think about if Jesus just ended there and we didn't have the rest of chapter 14, it would be easy to think like that the Christian life is just about believing in Jesus, having this promise of eternal life in heaven one day where, where we'll get to like dwell in God's presence forever. And then in the meantime, between whenever it is that you come to faith and whenever it is that Jesus comes to bring you to himself, we just have to like slog it through, right? Or we just believe and we've got the, like, our fire insurance and so we can just cruise until the end. Or like, we just got to work really, really hard to try to like, do what the Bible says we should do. And it just gets kind of like weary and burdensome. And sometimes I think we can like, lose sight of the reality of what God wants to do in us. But what Jesus is going to tell us today is two things. And I've taken these points from a book um, that I'm going to refer to later on in my sermon, but uh, what he's going to tell us in this first section, verses 7 through 21, is that we need to experience extravagant grace. I think I have these. Yeah, we, extravagant. Okay, I did spell it right. It looked wrong for a second. We need to experience extravagant grace, and we need to embrace radical discipleship. And I think sometimes we we, f we view those things at odds with each other, like that we, ex we receive all of this grace from God, and so we don't have to do anything, and so a lot of us don't do anything. Or we hear those, those calls of Jesus to like deny, every, like deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him, and we embrace this cause of radical discipleship, and we forget about grace, and it's all about all these things that we can do. But what Jesus is going to tell us at the end of the at the end of chapter 14 here is that we need to hold both of those things like 
um, firmly in our grasp, this, this extravagant grace that we've received and this radical discipleship that he calls us to. And so please stand with me. I'm going to read that first section of text. I'm going to start reading at verse, um, verse 6, and then, uh, then we'll pray and we'll get into our study together. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen my Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he shall do also, and greater works than these he shall do, because I go to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me because I live. You will live also. In that day, you shall know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Let's pray. Father, just thank you for your word, and I thank you for the, the truths that Jesus spoke to his disciples on that night that he was going to leave them. And um, there's, there's deep and mysterious things that Jesus speaks about here, so I just pray that you would open our hearts and, and our minds and our um, and open my like, ability to speak so that we can, we can understand the things that Jesus has for us in this text and that we could love you more and follow you more radically. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I think as we go through these questions, it's interesting what Jesus does. At the end of each kind of answer to each question, he kind of drops a new thing um, that, that's, that I think is Jesus' way of provoking another question from his disciples. So, like, if you look in verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my father also from... Now on you know him, the Father, and have seen him. So here's Jesus, like this guy that, that the disciples had walked with for the last several years, and he drops this bombshell like, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen God himself. And so it provokes this question, and, and it's, it's or a request from Philip. And he says, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. You know, amidst all of this turmoil, that they were kind of experiencing with the words of betrayal and denial and Jesus' departure and, and the things that they were about to experience that would shake their like, worldview about everything that Jesus came to, to do. Philip's, Philip's right. Like he says, you know, Jesus, if you just show us the Father, it'll be enough. You know, the whole Bible is filled with encounters where people like see God himself. They have this face-to-face -face encounter with God himself, and it transforms them. And so Philip gets that sense, and he's like, man, if, if, we could just see, if we could just see God, like if we could have a vision of him, like that would be enough, and we could make it through this journey that's before us. 
And Jesus' reply to him is interesting because Jesus begins to, is, is going to tell Philip, like, it's going to kind of affirm what Philip says in one way. It's going to rebuke Philip's like, lack of insight. But then he's going to build upon it uh, um, in a way that just shows the extravagant grace that we've received. Let's look at this. Look, look what Jesus does first. Verse 9. Have I been so long with you? This is Jesus' words. And yet you have not come to know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? So what Jesus is saying is like, Philip, you still don't get it. It's been years now. I've been talking about this quite a bit, Philip. And you don't understand that the, the unity between the Father and I is so deep that by seeing me, you're actually seeing the Father? Like, you're right, Philip. You just need to have this like, vision of who God is. And the best way that you're going to understand who God is is by looking at me. And by looking at me in the events that unfold over the next several days, in my, in my betrayal and in my arrest and in my crucifixion and in my burial and ultimately in my resurrection, then you'll understand, Philip. But you don't get it? Like, there's this deep unity between me and the Father. If you want to understand the Father, look at me. And that's how John opened his book. It's in John 1, verse 18. We, we saw it during worship. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus is the one who, like you could maybe even translate that idea of making him known as who's the one who exegetes the Father. He's the one who understands and explains him. He is the word of who God is. And Jesus is like, you know, Philip, the thing you need to understand is you need to look to me and then you'll see the Father. And then he says this, verse 10, do you not believe? And then like um, in verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he shall do also. In fact, he says, greater works that you'll do. So what Jesus is saying, you know, Philip, if you want, to, if you want enough, because that was Philip's response, you know, show us the Father and it's enough. Philip, what's really enough for you is to believe me and to believe that I'm unified with the Father and that the way to understand who God is is to see me. And if you believe you'll understand because I am the way and the truth and the life. Like, that's extravagant grace, right? He doesn't say, Philip, you got to do this and do that and do this and do that and show up in church and be respectful to Tina and all of those things, <laughs> right? He, he doesn't do that. He just says, believe me, Philip, that's what will be enough because then you'll understand the Father. It's extravagant grace. But as extravagant as that is, like being able to, to like be in God's presence and experience the fulfillment of all of his promises to us because of the work of Jesus Christ, he doesn't leave it there. He actually like takes it even further because look what he says. Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do because I go to the Father. So he's saying, you know, it's, it's not just about like, like what happens when you die. 
He's like, the works that I do in this world, you're going to do as well, and you're going to do even greater works because I go to the Father. And I'm like, think about that for a second. Really? Like, we're going to do something cooler than walking on water in the midst of a storm? We're going to take a stack lunch, you know, with those little tiny apples that they give you? Like, at the, I don't even know where they get those at the schools. Like, <laughs> You guys are homeschoolers, you probably don't know what I'm talking about, but. <laughs> and you're going to feed 5,000 people with a sack, a kid's sack lunch? Are you going to raise a guy from the dead that had been buried for several days? You know, there are those that take these verses and make them say that, that yeah, like our normal experience as Christians should be that we're going to do these greater miracles than Jesus did. And so we should be raising people from the dead and we should be like turning little miniature apples into a whole buffet, you know? Ironically, they don't do those things themselves. And I don't think that's what Jesus is even talking about here. And he gives us some clues in the text. First of all, look what he says in verse so in verse 12, he says, greater works than these he shall do because I go to the Father. That word works is different than the word signs that John uses to describe miracles. At the end of the book of John, he says that these signs have been written so that like, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. But then Jesus says, blessed are those who don't see, in context, it's these signs, and yet believe. The blessing of God, the work of God, is something separate from the signs. In fact, signs only have their value because of the one that they point to. He doesn't use the word signs here, just speaking about miracles. He uses works, which is this more general thing. What he's saying is like, the stuff that I came to earth to do, you're going to do that stuff too. And you're going to even do it in a greater way than I have. And now, you look at the book of Acts as it unfolds, like that does include, I think, at times, miracles. So I don't think it excludes miracles, but it's so much greater than that. He, he gives us some other clues. Look at, verse, um, look at verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. What Jesus is saying is I'm teaching you about the Father and I'm teaching you about me and I'm teaching you about what life is all about, is where it's going to be found. And my words don't come from me, but they come from the Father who is doing his work. What Jesus is doing is he's equating his word with the Father's works. So there's something like word-centered about what Jesus is doing. In fact, the scriptures like play this out. Like God created the whole world through his what? his word. Like he brings, he brought life and order into the cosmos through his word. The apostle Paul says the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. That's in 1 Corinthians 1. The apostle Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So when when the, the work that Jesus came to do wasn't to just do miracles. In fact, John minimizes the effect of miracles, saying like after the, the, the people that only believe because of the miracles, John even indicated in John 2, that wasn't even genuine belief. The miracles only like meant something as they pointed to Jesus. And, and what Jesus is saying is that his words 
are the Father's work. There's something really word-centered about these works that we're supposed to be doing. He goes on and he says this in verse um, 13. And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. There's two things there that that describe these works. First of all, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. What Jesus is saying is is that these works that you're going to do have to be worked in complete and utter dependence upon me. You need to ask me to work, and I will work. It's not us that is accomplishing the work. It's Jesus Christ working through us to accomplish his work. It's, and the purpose being so that the Father may be glorified in the Son, that these, these works are meant to like stir our, our affections as we see the glory of God in Jesus Christ and in God the Father. So these works that Jesus is talking about have to do with his word of, of the truth, has to do with, like, we accomplish them in complete dependence upon him. They bring glory to God and not to the messenger. And then lastly, he says something interesting. He says this in verse 14, if you ask me anything, it's the first time Jesus said to specifically ask him, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I wondered why that verse 15 was in there because it felt it was hard for me to make sense of this passage, but verse 15 felt out of place. But what he's saying is like, man, I love you guys. We knew that from John chapter 13. John told us that Jesus loved them to the end. And what he's saying is if you ask me anything in my name, that is in accordance with my character and my mission and my purpose and who I really am, like I am glad to do that. There's this loving relationship that Jesus has with us where he is inclined always to do what's consistent with his character in and through us when we ask. And then he says, and if you love me, you'll do the same thing. You'll keep my commandments. You know, there's clearly this Lord, like, servant thing going on here. Jesus is the Lord, and and he doesn't have to qualify it in his name because he always asks us and only asks us to do things that are in accordance with our nature and our character. In fact, if you, if you want to like really know who you are and experience life like God would have you do it, it's found in following the words of God in this book because he's the one that defines who we are. He's the one that shapes who we are. He's the one that brings life to us. He's, and, and so this, this, these greater works are done in dependence upon God, for the glory of God, through the word of God, and in relationship with God. It's this loving relationship of asking the Son and responding to him and doing what he asks when he responds and does what we ask. You know, so that as God's people, and we should be people of confidence in this world because he has invited us into this mission of his in the world to, like, save people out of darkness into his marvelous light. This greater works that he's doing, I think, is speaking about the the spread of the gospel through the whole world, the establishment of his church, the the fulfillment of all of his promises as he brings in his kingdom. That's what he invites us into. Like, we have purpose in this time between our salvation and his return, and we're to work in dependence and relationship upon Jesus Christ with his word to bring life to this world. So Jesus is speaking of here. You're going to do greater works. You know, we can spend our lives on so many dumb things. You know, we spend them on our hobbies. We spend them on our, 
on our sins and on our addictions. We spend them on like good things that aren't just gonna aren't even the best things. And what Jesus is inviting us into is this extravagant grace that takes like broken people like me and like you and uses them for his glory and for the glory of God. But as extravagant as that is, he doesn't just leave it there. He gives us something else. Look what he says in verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. So not only am I, are we going to be working in conjunction with each other, Jesus says, but I'm going to send along somebody else to help you, another one. And then he says this, that he may be with you forever. He's not going to leave. That is the spirit of truth. It's interesting, if you're still doubting like my kind of word-centeredness of what those great works are, it's interesting what Jesus calls the Spirit. He doesn't call him the Spirit of power. He doesn't call him the Spirit of miracles. He doesn't call him the Spirit of whatever. Like clouds that blow through the room. He calls him the Spirit of truth. Like the Spirit of God is going to come alongside of us. He's the Spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive because he does not behold him because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Like Jesus is telling the disciples, is like, you don't completely understand it now, but this Holy Spirit, he's been with you this whole time, like helping you understand the truth of what I'm saying. And one day, things are going to radically change. He's not just going to be with you. He's going to be in you. Like this extravagant grace that God is pouring out on us in Jesus Christ is one that gives us a new heart and a new spirit. It gives us spiritual life. It transforms our affections and our desires as the spirit is at work within us. He says, there's going to be this helper that comes along with you and he's going to be in you and he's going to be with you forever. You know, he's speaking about the new covenant that was promised in the Old Testament, how the Spirit's going to come upon the people of God, remove their heart of stone, and give them a heart of like flesh, like a, like a live beating heart. You know, the greatest like, evidence, I think, of when you come to faith is if the Spirit of God is changing your affections and your desires, or if you're just still kind of living by the same thing over and over again, this extravagant grace that God gives us new desires, new affections, new purpose, new hope, a new love as he comes to live within us. But the disciples on that side of the cross, like, they still weren't getting things, you know, and that kind of sounds a little bit like mystical, like Jesus, like, okay, whatever, Jesus, but, but like, you're with us right now and you said you were going to leave. And, and then, so I think Jesus anticipates that, and that's why he says what's next. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Like, I just want to stop there. You know, if you feel orphaned at times in this life, if you feel like you're just out there on your own, you feel like nobody cares, like you pray to God and you just don't feel like he listens, You've prayed, 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 and prayed, and he hasn't responded. In fact, it's like the exact opposite of what you prayed for has happened. I experienced that. I talked to, to equip, our equip class on Monday night. Like, I struggle sometimes now praying for, like, praying for myself. I pray for all of you with confidence, but for myself, less so. 
you know, I struggle with this because, like, I believe that God is good and that he responds to the prayers of his people and he loves them. And I don't doubt his goodness, but sometimes I doubt his goodness to me. You know, and what, what the Lord is saying, you know what, like, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. The spirit of God is the spirit of adoption. One day I'm going to return and you're going to finally be home. Like, don't get discouraged. And in the meantime, we're going to be working together with these greater works and the spirit's going to be with you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. You know, as amazing as that is and as extravagant as the grace is that brings us into the family of God simply on the basis of our faith, like he doesn't just leave it there, but he like even goes further. Look what he says in verses 19 and 20. He says, after a little while, the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me because I live, you will live also. In that day, you shall know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. He's saying, I'm not just going to end there. Like, my life is going to become your life. And how is that even possible? He says, because in that day, I think he's talking about that day after he raises from the dead and it all starts to make sense to them. In that day, you're going to know that I am in the Father. And then listen, you are in me and I am in you. It's this amazing, mysterious truth that the Bible is talking about. In fact, like the Apostle Paul, he doesn't use the language. He doesn't use the term Christian to describe followers of Christ. He uses the term those who are in Christ. It's this amazing, mysterious reality where everything that belongs to Christ is ours. And what God sees us, he sees us like enveloped in the righteousness of Christ. In fact, Colossians, listen to what Colossians, Paul says about this in Colossians 1, 25 through 29. He says this. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery. It's this deep thing that's hard to map our, wrap our minds around, which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints. That's all of us who believe in Christ. To whom God willed known to make known what is the riches of of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's like, there is this amazing mystery that God planned before the ages to all the Gentiles, those that were far from him, that one day you can experience Christ in you. And then he goes on. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. He says he wants, to, he wants to present every person, man and woman, complete in Christ. What he's saying is like this deep mystery of what it means to have Christ in us and for us to be in Christ is something that he's going to labor for. He's going to strive for so that people can like, like begin to like apply that to all the different areas of their life so that he could present them complete in Christ again. It's a really kind of deep thing, and there's, a, there's lots of books written around this sub subject of, of uh, our union with Christ. One of them is entitled Union with Christ by Rankin Wilborn. Um, I would recommend the book, but in it, he says this. He says, when we are in Christ, every part of Christ's life, not only his death, has significance for us. We share in his life and obedience, his death and, our, and resurrection, even his ascension. 
we participate in another's victory, all that is his becomes ours. Think about that for a second. Everything about Jesus becomes significant for us. His life, his death, his righteousness, his resurrection, his power, his... That's why the Apostle Paul can say things like in, in I think it's Galatians, right? Yeah, Galatians 2.20. Look what he says. I have been crucified with Christ. Like his crucifixion is my crucifixion. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. His resurrection is Christ living in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Like my sinful self was crucified with Christ and I've been raised again with Christ. Like being in Christ has transformed who I am. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. Like God looks upon us and he sees the righteousness of Christ that was, that was credited to our account. Like the gospel doesn't just wipe your slate clean. It deposits all of Christ's righteousness into your account. Like you are absolutely free from condemnation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. I guess this is an amazing reality that because of the work of the gospel, like it's not just about believing and going to heaven one day. Like we are transformed people. Like our, our position is transformed. Like God's view of us is transformed. We have confidence. It is this extravagant, unbelievable grace that we've received. You know, so if you're here and you're like struggling with condemnation because you just can't live up to what you know God's calling you to do, just know this. Like, if you genuinely come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are in him. Everything that is his is now yours. When the Father sees you, he sees him. You're free. You're a new creature. Like, you've been crucified and raised with him. I mean, there's, I could go on and on and on, but I don't have time. But it's interesting what Jesus does next, because he says this. What verse am I on? Oh, verse 23. Oh, no, verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. All of a sudden, after talking about this extravagant grace that's ours on the basis of belief, all of a sudden Jesus talks about this love and that our love for God is going to be proven by our obedience. Like, you got to do something. And all of a sudden it's kind of weird. We get into this weird tension where, oh, I have this extravagant grace, and this extravagant grace is to create in me this, this love. And this is where our second point is, that we need to embrace this radical discipleship because Jesus says, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. Again, there's this word-centeredness to this whole text. Like, you're going to, we're going to do what Jesus calls us. Like, he's calling us to embrace and, and understand the depths and, like, the depths of his radical and, and um, extravagant grace, like, work into every area of our life. But then he also calls us to this radical discipleship. And, he, and then Judas, like, kind of skipped over the obedience part. And then he says, Lord, this is not the bad Judas. This is the other guy, it says. <laughs> It's like if your kid was named Hitler, like, not that Hitler. 
right? Like, I would recommend against Hitler as a name, but just to be clear. Lord, what then has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Because like, Jesus says, like, those who love me are going to keep my commandments and the Father will love him and, that, and we will disclose ourselves to him. Like we're going to reveal ourselves to, to this person. And Jesus says this, verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. It's an interesting statement because Jesus had talked about us going to the Father one day. Now he's saying the opposite. Like, those who love me keep my commandments, and, and those who like love me and keep my commandments, the Father will love them, and he's going to actually move in with you. Like, you're going to experience this relationship with the Father that's unbelievable. But our love for Christ is manifested in keeping his word. His word is the Father's word, is what Jesus goes on to say. Where am I at now? Um, verse, yeah, verse 24. He, do, he who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. Now here's the challenge for us, I think, if we, if we really kind of s- let these things sink in. You know, we hear about this extravagant grace of God, of a grace that is real and mysterious and deep and transformative and, and that should like change us in such a way and give us this new heart by the indwelling work of the Spirit that causes us to have like different desires and different like direction and different purpose in our life where we're invited into the purposes of God in this world and, and it all sounds great until we like, like look in the mirror and and. And we, were, and we wonder sometimes, do I even believe in any of this stuff? Like, I look at, like, how weak my faith is. I look at these deep and mysterious mysteries and realize, and, 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 and I experience how far it is that I have to go to, like, really embrace those in my heart. And I just wonder, like, do I even believe? Or you have the other experience where, like, you hear this call of, like, keeping God's commandments if you love him, and you just, you're, like, going to knuckle down, and you're going to be like, okay, I'm going to do everything that God wants me to do, and, and you're all in, and, and you're, you're like, like, doing it perfectly for, like, eight seconds. <laughs> and that's only because you don't have an accurate view of yourself. And then you get just weary, like, man, do I even love Jesus? Because, like, it, it takes so little to derail me and send me down this path that, like, I know is going to just destroy me and crush my spirit, that there's no life in, but I still, like, go down and do it anyway. And we kind of get in this cycle of, like, man, of beating ourselves up because of our, our lack of faith or, like, beating ourselves up because of our lack of obedience. And I think what Jesus wants us to hold on to is he wants us to hold on to both of those things. In fact, uh, it's interesting because uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this in The Cost of Discipleship. He says these words. I think I've got them up on the screen. He says, only those who believe obey, and only those who obey believe. If the first half of the proposition stands alone, the believer is exposed to the danger of cheap grace, which is another word for damnation. What he's saying there, I love this because how often do I get to say damnation in a sermon? Like, <laughs> He's saying only those who believe obey. Like, there's this, like, belief that we're supposed to have in Christ. Like, the greatest way to obey Jesus Christ is in, like, trusting him completely and experiencing his extravagant grace. But if that's all it is, 
He says, you're exposed to this danger of cheap grace, which is another word for damnation. Then he goes on. He says, only those... Yeah, go to the next slide, I think. Oh, if the second half stands alone, the believer is exposed to the danger of salvation through works, which is um, only those who obey believe. Like, we got to do this, we got to do this, we got to do this to prove, like, what we believe. Which is, the believer is exposed to the danger of salvation, which I did misspell, through works, which is another word for damnation. Like, there's these two extremes. Like, if we just have this cheap grace, like, oh, I just believe, and so, like, everything's going to be fine for me, and I, God doesn't call me to do anything, like, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, no, that's damnation. <laughs> or if we're over here, and, like, I'm just going to work hard, and, like, if I do all the right things, God will accept me. Nope. Damnation. I think this, what Jesus is talking about here is the key. Do I have anything else? I think that's the end of my quote, right? Oh, no, here it is. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> it is all important. The all important thing is what I missed, right? <laughs> it is all important that the pastor should be ready with both sides of the proposition. Only those who obey can believe, and only those who believe can obey. Those last two phrases are a little confusing. Only those who obey can believe, and only those who believe can obey. But we need to be ready and you need to be ready with both sides of the proposition. I think that's where this text comes in. Because Jesus is saying, you have been recipients of this extravagant grace. And, and because of this extravagant grace, like you have my indwelling with you. You're found in me. Like the spirit of God lives inside of you. You've been called into this greater purpose. And so if you love me, and you're going to follow me, and you're going to pursue, like, with this radical discipleship, and, and, and follow me. Uh, Rankin Wilburn, in that book, Union with Christ, kind of explains this, and he explains this cycle of, of, like, beating ourselves up because our faith isn't enough, or then coming over here and beating ourselves because our obedience isn't enough, and, and he says this. What, it's the next, it's, there it is. How does union with Christ break the cycle? At the root. Now listen, when anxious and distressing feelings arise, you can know that you are not alone. He goes on. You are in Christ. When you feel defeated and ensnared like you are never going to get over this particular sin, habit, or hang-up, when your enemy accuses you and your heart tells you to retreat in shame, you can rehearse and remember, I am in Christ. I am one for whom he died. It's extravagant grace. But then he goes on. The work of Christ sets you free from sin's penalty. So rather than turning away from God, you can turn towards Christ precisely when you might be tempted to hide from him. You can boldly approach uh, his throne with confidence because you remember you are completely covered by Christ's righteousness. Only those who believe can obey. And he, he, so he borrows that phrase from from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he's saying, like, yeah, so when you're getting beat up and you're, and you're wanting to, like, turn away from Christ and not draw near to him, and you've been set free from his penalty, you can boldly approach the throne with confidence because you are covered by Christ's righteousness so you can obey and draw near because you believe. But then the flip side is also true. He says, Christ is in you. So not only are you in Christ, but Christ is in you. You are not left alone with your own resources. The obedient, powerful, merciful Jesus dwells within you. Christ in you is greater than anything that threatens you. 
That's from 1 John 4, 4. The person of Christ sets you free from sin's power. He continues, when it feels as though you are drowning in a sea of trouble, you don't have to medicate your feelings or reach for solutions that might temporarily leave but ultimately destroy you. You can choose instead to draw on Christ's strength and you will find that you are strengthened. You can take one step even in the dark. You can make one new choice. You can hold on for one more minute. Only those who, only those who obey can believe. So what he's saying is this, is like the fact that Christ is, we are in Christ, which just says you'll know on that day that, that you are in me. Like we can draw near the throne with boldness because we're, we're completely like wrapped in Christ's righteousness. And in that time when you're like, when you just feel like you can't go on any further, when you've reached the end of your resources, when you just can't take one more step of obedience, you can turn to Christ because not only are you in him, but he is in you. And his, he is the, how did he say it? I, I have it here in my notes. The obedient, powerful, merciful Jesus dwells within you, and he is greater than anything that threatens you. So you can take one more step, relying upon him in obedience. You know, Brian, why don't you come up? You know, these are deep, like I said, deep and mysterious things. Even Paul calls them mysterious. Yeah, but the reality is this, is that this extravagant grace that we've received means that we have this union with Jesus that is real and true and substantive, but it's one that it's hard for us to see. That's why Jesus says, believe. Believe in me. Believe that... I am in you and that you are in me. Believe that in this relationship we have, you can, you can do the work of the Father in this world. Believe that my spirit lives in you and you've given the, he's given you this new heart and that we can follow him. And I think when we grasp both of those things, Christ in us and us in Christ, like we, we, we get that harmony of like experiencing God's extravagant grace and at the same time like having the resources to pursue the radical discipleship that he calls us to. You know, so may we be those kind of people, right? May we be the people who live in constant confidence of being in Christ and who live in the power of Christ in us. So Brian, why don't you close us and, um, and then I'll, I'll, I'll close us in prayer when you're done.